Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Um, welcome to Grace Fellowship. Um, oh, we've changed it. How awesome. Uh, in the first service, uh, they had my formal name up there, H. Clifton Ward, and I don't want anybody to call me that. So please just call me Cliff. Uh, my wife, Beth, and I have had the distinct blessing of worshiping and being a part of the Grace community now for nine months. Um, normally on a Sunday, I'm here as you are. I come in, uh, I have fellowship with God's people in God's house, I am fed. Uh, in the bread and wine of communion. and But man doesn't live on bread alone, does he? But by the very words of God. And we get to hear that when we are here. Joel is gone. I made the comment in the first service that I thought he would be up and listening, but then I realized he's a few time zones away. So I hope he's listening now this morning. Um, he sends you his greetings. Um, but I'm glad that he asked me to be here to continue our series on uh, the characteristics of a disciple-making church by looking at shepherding to spiritual maturity. By trade, I am a historian, which sounds very strange, but it just means that I do a lot of reading of dead people and talk about it to young students at a college, right? So um, this is a little disconcerting for me because I'm used to being in one room with like 20 people, right? And we can talk and ask questions and so on. And now I look out and there's many more faces and somewhere in cyberspace, there's a lot of other people listening too. So I'm a little nervous whether you can tell or not, but I am glad that you're here. And I hope that as we go uh, through this, we would see what Paul might have to say to us about the characteristics of our church in seeking to be a disciple-making church. So I'm going to ask whether electronically or like me with a hard copy, you would turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1. And I'm going to ask in honor of God's word that you would stand as I read this, please. Uh, this is the very means by which God speaks to us this morning and every day. This is God's word for God's people. And so after I finish reading, I'm simply going to say, this is the word of God for the people of God. And if you believe that, I just want you to respond, thanking God. Respond, thanks be to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says these words, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, miracles, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, 
stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. For he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. I'm going to stop there. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, who pours out on everyone who desires it a spirit of grace and supplication, deliver us when we draw near to you this morning from the coldness of our hearts, and the wanderings of our mind, that with steadfast, focused thoughts and renewed affections, we might worship you in spirit and truth this morning, Father. You are the fountain of all wisdom. You know our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion. Oh, have mercy on us in our weakness And give us those things for which, because of our unworthiness, we dare not ask you. And because of our blindness, we can't. But we pray all of this through the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You can be seated. We were driving down the road and I looked in the rear view mirror of our car and my three daughters were sitting there and I thought, I'm going to have a little fun today. We had just moved into a new house and they really don't like it when I put them on the spot, right? So I looked at them in the rear view mirror and I said, girls, what is your favorite thing about the new house, right? Now, my oldest, Corinne, absolutely despises that question because she cannot think of something to be her favorite. She's like, then I'm saying one thing's better than the other and that can't be. But if I had to answer, I would say the fact that I get my own room now. She's quite excited about that. 
My youngest daughter, Caroline's only three, so she didn't quite get it. So she said, my room and my bunk bed and my Legos and my Barbies, all of these things are fun to her. And so they become her favorite, right? But then it got to my middle daughter, Annalyn, who is the most creative little girl. And I knew that she was going to say something worth keeping, right? So I said, Annalyn, what's your favorite thing? She looked straight-faced and she said, the treehouse. Except we don't have a treehouse. <laughs> there is no treehouse on our property. And I said, the treehouse? And she said, oh yeah, Dad, the treehouse. She already had this thing in her mind. And I said, wow, that's uh, impressive, Annalyn. We got home and I thought, well, I'm going to probe this a little more, right? That's what you do, right? So I said, Annalyn, now this treehouse is presumably going to be outside. What if I'm inside, your mom's inside? What if there are intruders at your treehouse? I said, look, you've got a slide on the right-hand side, right? What if they just climb up the slide and get to you? She said, Dad, come on, the slide narrows. It narrows as you go up, and so they're just going to get caught, and we're going to snatch them, me and the clubhouse members. I said, okay. I said, but look at the other side. There's a pole. Poles don't narrow. She looked at me, and she said, oh, Dad, it's the slime. I said, the slime? She said, oh, it's slimy. It really helps us go down fast, but you can't climb up it. You can't do that when there's slime. I said, okay, well, you got me there. I can't argue with that logic. I said, but I think you're forgetting one important fact, right? You can probably look at this and see. There's a ladder. That's how they get up, right? The clubhouse members have to get in. I said, what if the intruders just get in the same way you do and climb up the ladder? And she looked at me again, straight face as can be, and she said, the lasers. The lasers, huh? She said, yeah. When you get up to the top and the entrance, there's lasers that cross it, right? And they can smell you. I said, they can smell you? Yeah, they know the smell of all the clubhouse members and they let us all in. But if intruder comes up, it will smell them and they are toast. I said, whoa, I would have never gotten that. And of course she piqued my interest and so I had to go further. And I said, okay, Annalyn, You've got me, you're asking this too. What does the unicorn do, right? Oh, dad, that's just a unicorn. I said, what do you mean it's just a unicorn? She said, but it does have cameras in the eyes and it can see intruders a mile away and we'll never have to use any of this stuff. You see, this treehouse mesmerizes my daughter. It doesn't exist. She's not felt it. She's not seen it. It's not tangible to her, but she never tires about reflecting on it and thinking about it, enjoying those thoughts about this treehouse. It mesmerizes her. That's one of the things I learned from this conversation with her this last week. But another thing that I learned was that I actually think my daughter's mindset on this treehouse can help us think about what it might mean to grow more mature spiritually. Now, that may sound strange to you, and you may say, Cliff, how does that actually relate? And I'm glad you asked, right? I love questions. You see, questions are actually designed to be asked and answered 
and then re-asks and probed around in different words, kind of with different facets to them, so that we continually learn things about one particular topic. And this strikes at my heart as a professor, right? This strikes at my heart as a teacher because it makes me realize when people ask questions that they're trying to get to the depths and the bottom of something that's going on, right? Um, So... I just want to say, don't ever be afraid to ask questions about your faith. Don't be afraid to ask questions about God and and the scriptures and the church. If you think that God is unable to answer and stand up to the questions that we might pose, then you have a much bigger view of our feeble minds than you do of God. So, This morning, I want us to ask some questions. We're talking about shepherding to spiritual maturity, and that phrase itself lends itself to a couple of questions, right? What exactly does it mean to shepherd? Seems like an easy question, but I think if we think about it a bit more, it may be harder than we first realized because we don't really deal with shepherds very much on a regular basis. So what might it mean for Paul in particular to shepherd? And the second question that I want us to ask is how would we define spiritual maturity? What marks are there of a spiritually mature person? How do we know that we are moving in that direction both individually, ourselves, and those around us? How can we see that growth? What would it look like to be able to say, this person is spiritually mature? That's a difficult question. But I think Paul has some answers for us in his letter to the Corinthian church. It's just a little bit about the city of Corinth because it helps us to understand where and to whom Paul is writing. Corinth was very much at the intersection of the world uh, in the Mediterranean, right? The city of Corinth literally sat on the intersection uh, east to west and north to south, which pretty much guaranteed that whatever you did in Corinth, you were going to have some success in it. You could be a banker, You could be a day laborer, you could be a warehouse worker, you could be a tent maker, you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, uh, you could be an entertainer of any type, and you were virtually uh, assured to find a home in Corinth because everybody went through there and some people even stayed. But because of this, the Corinthians were infused in their very being with a prosperity and a self-sufficiency that was unmatched in the first century. This attitude had some results, right? It resulted in a prioritization of prestige and success, of winning and not losing over logic, rationality, and truth. So for the Corinthian culture, When they would talk about wisdom, which seems to be a pretty important word for Paul, when they would talk about wisdom, they would talk about knowing how to make a persuasive case or being so polished that whatever you said brought you praise and success. Didn't matter what you said as long as it had the intended results. The the speaker was so much more important than than that what was spoken. The messenger more important than the message. And it was in this culture 
that Paul was writing to the Christian community at Corinth, and he attempts to redefine wisdom, to turn it around and give it a new definition for this particular community. And it's that act of redefining this reality for them that I think will help us understand what Paul would say a spiritually mature person looks like. And so I think the passage that we read can be divided quite easily into three larger sections. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, and chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, actually Paul deals with the issue of spiritual maturity on the two ends. And then in the middle, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul deals with uh, the issue of shepherding, um, how one would go about bringing this spiritual maturity. Now, since Paul spends more time speaking about spiritual maturity than the activity of shepherding, I think that's what we'll do this morning. But I don't want to miss what he says about the the action of shepherding, of leading someone and guiding them to spiritual maturity. So we're going to kind of go a little awkwardly in the passage, and we're going to deal with the middle bit first, and then we're going to look at the two ends. I'm a teacher, so I want you to make sure you have some tools handy with you. That is the scriptures so that you can see it either electronically or hard copy, and then a pen or a pencil or a highlight, highlighting function or whatever. Maybe dog ear the pages if you want to come back and do this later, whatever you need to do. But I want you to follow along um, because I want you to see what Paul says here. So the first question that we're going to ask is, what does it mean for Paul to shepherd? And the first thing I want you to see from verses one to five of chapter two is that a shepherd knows the people and what they need in order to mature. Remember, Corinth was expecting that a new speaker like Paul would be polished, right? He would know what to say to bring himself praise. And of course, Paul knows this, knows that they were expecting him to wow them. But how does he operate a bit differently? Look in verses three to five. Paul comes and he says, Uh, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, it's possible that Paul was using those words to counteract how the other speakers in Corinth were. But the Old Testament uses the same phrase, fear and trembling, when it describes the posture that people should have when they serve and worship God, right? Psalm 211 says, serve the Lord with fear and worship him in trembling. So in a way very distinct from what the Corinthian community would expect, Paul understands that his message uh, demands a particular posture, a particular way of coming before God. Do you remember that when we come here and gather together or when you're reading the very words God has given to speak to you? Do you remember that this is God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who's worthy of all fear and trembling. In fact, maybe that's why the Old Testament says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But Paul also says he doesn't come in plausible words of wisdom. He comes in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's in verse four. 
Um, I think that's a very interesting choice of words that Paul brings out. This is where you can take that pen or highlighter and you can underline plausible words of wisdom and demonstration. Those are actually words that the Corinthian speakers and entertainers would have been using. Like, how do you like my demonstration of these words? How do you like my persuasiveness and plausibility? And Paul turns it around and says, I didn't come with that. I want you to see not my demonstration, but a demonstration of the Spirit of God who comes in power. Were it not for the Spirit, Paul believed that the purpose of his message would never be reached. And what is that purpose? I'm glad you asked. He tells us in verse 5, look, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For Paul... If he operated as the Corinthians expected with a powerful words and a minimized message, their belief would be in him and not in God. But Paul knew that the message was the only means to bring about spiritual maturity among the Corinthians. And that's the second thing I want you to see about shepherding. A shepherd knows the exact message that will bring about spiritual maturity for the people to which he or she speaks. Notice what he says back in verse 1 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. No lofty speech, no lofty wisdom. I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was the message Not the messenger, Paul didn't care about that. The message that would bring about spiritual maturity among this Corinthian church. Did you you notice anywhere in the passage that Paul actually used the word shepherd? Did Did he say, shepherd them in this way or you will be a shepherd? It's funny, Paul very rarely uses the term shepherd in any way. The only time he really goes about it is when he talks about uh church elders who serve as shepherds over a flock. For Paul, the title wasn't important as the activity that was happening among the Corinthians. It's not simply, in Paul's mind, the duty of a church elder or a ministry director or a small group leader to be a shepherd in any sense. So let me ask you, how do you see your shepherding role in life. Parents, are you shepherding children under your care? Grandparents, your grandchildren, are you protecting them, helping them to see that God's wisdom is greater than the wisdom of the world? Are you guiding them into maturity, reading things with them that are important for them to read, praying them prayer or praying with them prayers that put the focus on Christ and him crucified? Uh, Are you aware and do you practice the fact that the church has for thousands of years had traditions of raising children in a particular way, in a particular fashion, so that they would know the great truths of Christianity from a very early age? But not just parents or grandparents, uh, just individuals. Are you too wrapped up in the things that are going on around you that you don't notice someone who's struggling beside you? Someone who's struggling in a particular area to live 
uh, godly and Christ-like. In 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, we're given uh, a charge to church elders that they're to shepherd the flock among them. And it says they're to exercise oversight. They're not to seek shameful gain. They're supposed to do it willingly, not for themselves, but for the sake of God and the gospel, right? But the author summarizes the shepherding activity at the very end of that passage in 1 Peter 5. And he says, be an example to the flock. Sometimes we can take the shepherding activity or the discipling activity and make it way too complicated. Because Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Are you living in such a way that the one person who sees you sees God and all that he has done for you in Jesus? That's shepherding according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Let's turn and ask the second question. How should we define spiritual maturity? How do we know if someone is maturing spiritually? Paul said, uh, we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But he already said that back in chapter 1. So that's where I want us to look. In 1.18, we see that spiritual maturity prioritizes the wisdom of God over any wisdom of the world. For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. That's what Paul wanted, a demonstration of power. This is it. Paul said he wanted them to see that. And here it is. On the one hand, it's quite simple, right? God's definitive act among men is the cross of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That is how God has revealed himself and his definitive act to reconcile us to him. Simple. On the other hand, it's quite difficult for us to imagine and admit that this message could be foolishness to so many. We want it to be powerful for everyone, but there are those, what does Paul say? Those who are perishing, to which it's simply foolishness. And so we would think that Paul would just strike up this discord with wisdom, this this desire to get away from the wisdom of the world, but he said, I actually want you to pursue wisdom. Notice what he says in verse 21 of chapter 1. For since in God's wisdom, right, he's setting them aside, right? No wisdom of the world. What is God's wisdom? In God's wisdom, the world did not know God through their own wisdom, but it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. And what do we preach? Go down to verse 24. Jesus Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. How do we discern spiritual maturity among ourselves and others? At the bare minimum, there's a desire to prioritize God's wisdom, specifically that seen in the life and death of Jesus and seeing that greater than the world's wisdom. But the second thing that we see with spiritual maturity is that spiritual maturity, if it's marked in an individual, will understand how to discern God's work and his purpose in and among us, right? It's interesting that Paul actually uses uh, the Christian community in Corinth 
as an example of God's wisdom. Notice what it says. Consider, this is verse 26, sorry. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate that. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's an interesting fact. As an historian, I told you I read a lot of dead people. Um, But it's an interesting fact that in all of world history, some of the most influential and powerful people found the message of Christianity to be foolishness. Of course, I don't think what Paul means here is that no influential people will ever be a part of the church. That can't be what he means because there are lawyers, doctors, bankers, politicians, etc., as part of the church, not just at large, but even in this particular community. No, I think what Paul says, his general emphasis is that those who prefer power and recognition and nobility here in worldly standards will always see the message of God's wisdom to be foolishness. We'll always see the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus as foolishness. For Paul, God has chosen the weak to shame the wise, the low to shame the high, the things that don't exist to put to shame the things that do exist. But he gives a purpose for that. He doesn't just do it arbitrarily. Verse 29, so that no human being shall boast in the presence of God. A second marker of spiritual maturity is that one boasts in God and not in him or herself. When they face adversity, death, illness, the loss of a job, whatever the adversity is, and those are are small adversities compared to what the church faces across the globe. But whatever adversity it is, do we boast in our own ability to withstand it? Or do we pray out and say, God, help. God, I believe, help my unbelief. Paul is pushing the Corinthians to a God-centered view of everything. Not just a God-centered view of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, but of all reality, of everything we do on every day of the year. He's pushing us towards a God-centered view of everything. Let me show you what I mean. Um, Paul has already said that I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, the message of the cross, and so on, right? He's telling this to the Corinthians, In some sense, that seems good to us. We can't get beyond what God has done for us in that definitive event. But in 1 Corinthians 3, the very next chapter, Paul's going to lament the immaturity of the Corinthian church. He's been there. He's spoken to them about Jesus and him crucified. And ultimately, I think they received it. They understood that that was good for them. And yet Paul still says, I can't speak some things among you because you're immature. So there must be another aspect that Paul wants us to get about spiritual maturity in this passage. And I think it's this. Spiritual maturity recognizes the God-centeredness of all reality. 
Let me read verses 6 through 11 of chapter 2. You all are not listening fast enough. Uh, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, listen to how Paul talks about this, this, uh, this truth of God's wisdom. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him, God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Again, the teacher and me, here's another activity for you. I want you to do a few things for me. I want you to underline a couple of phrases that I just, that I just read. In verse 6, it says, we uh, impart wisdom among the mature. Underline that. In verse 7, it says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Underline that. And then jump back to verse 1 of chapter 2, which I didn't just read, but I want you to underline testimony of God right there, okay? That's the underlining activity. Now we're moving to the circling activity. I want you to circle a few words. In uh, verse 7, I want you to circle the word God. God decreed before the ages. In verse 10, I want you to circle spirit. The spirit searches everything. And then way down in verse 16, I want you to circle Christ, the mind of Christ that has been given to the Corinthian community. There's so much that I could say from this passage. Uh, I wish I had more time to talk because this is the one uh, that mean, uh, th- that's probably my favorite of all three in this, uh, in this section. Um, it's so easy if you know another language to realize that translating from that language into another, like from Spanish to English or French to English or Italian or German or whatever, it's very difficult because you lose something as you translate, right? We all have our own idioms that our families talk about or that our culture speaks of uh, as, as English speakers that when you translate, you lose it. So it becomes very difficult to translate something. Those passages that I had you underline from verses 1, 6, and 7 are an example of this happening in this very passage. In chapter 2, verse 1, you might even have like a superscript on your text that says, testimony of God. In most manuscripts read, mystery of God. Paul is teaching the mystery of God. In verse 7, it says, Paul says, we speak the wisdom of God hidden in a mystery. Now, we could probably understand why people don't want to translate that every time because that's a difficult concept, right? We have to think that Paul doesn't mean by this something like Scooby-Doo and the solving of mysteries on any given uh, choice by accident, right? That's not what he means by this. So what does Paul mean by the mystery of God? It's often said that a mystery is something hidden for a time and then revealed, especially in the Bible. And I think to an extent that's true, right? God makes promises to Israel and he fulfills them in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That life, death, and resurrection was previously hidden, but has now been revealed. But Paul must mean something so much more than that. That's part and parcel of it. 
But how else would he say in verse 9, what no eye has seen? I mean, Jesus, uh, 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 John, in the first letter of John, says that the thing about Jesus is we touched him, we felt him, we saw him, right? But Paul says, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even been imagined in the heart what God has prepared for those who love him, for his people. The reason I had you circle God decreed before the ages... The Spirit reveals these things, and we've been given the mind of Christ, is that God's mystery from first to last, from before time until after time, is Himself, right? Double underline for me, verse uh, 10, the depths of God, the deep things of God. What does the Spirit search out? Because the Spirit is Himself God, He can understand that God the Father is so much more than what our feeble minds can understand. And He's given us His words in order to help us move to this. There's a quote from St. Augustine in your notes. I'm not going to read that, but he has this great phrase in it. He says, we, we rejoice in the light that's given to us from the sky and we rejoice in uh, the water that springs up from the earth. We rejoice in all these good things that God gives to us, but we forget that God gives that to both the good and the wicked. Do you ever think about that? Those things that we're thanking him for? Uh, everyone gets to experience those. So Augustine says, does he just have something for those who are good? for those he's called and made a part of his church? He says, yes, it's what no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's never entered into man's heart. And then Augustine says, the promise of God that this talks about is the fact that the prophet said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. The gift that God gives for us, much like my daughter, to think about and to rethink about is himself in his triune life. God the Father, almighty creator, has given us his word, his son, that never returns void, accomplishes its purpose, and has redeemed us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that triune life of God serves as the basis for everything we do. It's the basis for our prayers, it's the basis for our missions. We only go on mission because God loved us and sent his son. And therefore, the spirit has sanctified us to be sent as well. Everything, everything we do goes back to the fact that God has given himself in his triune life to us. He reflects on this. Later in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, you know, I only see this dimly now. Like I'm looking in a mirror. It's all that I can actually take of looking at God and who he is. And you would think that might drive Paul to despair, but it doesn't. Because after that, he says, these three things remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Pursue that. You see God dimly, but what you see of God is that God is love. So pursue love. 
How did Jesus sum up the entire teaching of God, the entire voice of Yahweh in the Old Testament? Love your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two sayings depend the entire law and the entire prophets. In other words, for Paul, the gospel was Jesus Christ and him crucified, by which God has reconciled us to himself. But it wasn't just that. It was that I will always be your God and you will be my people. A promise that gives us reason to be every day that we get up and go to work or gather together as a people. So what are the marks of spiritual maturity? That God's people would be filled with his spirit. And this is a spirit that is characterized by particular fruit. Peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But the first marker is love. It would be easy for us to get beyond that, but Paul was convinced that we can't. First and second Corinthians are among the greatest example of Paul's pastoral heart in all of the New Testament. He deals with so many issues with the Corinthians, marriage and personal relationships, what you're to do with your finances, how you're to handle when you have a disagreement with someone in the church. Should you take them to court or should you deal with it yourself? Um, what we're to do when we come together as we gather, right? The church should look a particular way because we follow a God who is orderly three persons. So for Paul, if he can talk about all of those things and say that the foundation of all of that is God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God as Holy Trinity, then we shouldn't get beyond it. Paul never did. The unity that Joel talked about last week, our prayer lives, our mission lives, everything is dependent on our continual reflection and observation on the fact that God, eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, has given himself to us. And we will be partakers of a divine nature. How do I know that Paul never got beyond that? Because he leaves the Corinthians with those exact words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the very last words that Paul leaves with them are the words that I want to leave you with. Paul said, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord who gave his life a ransom for many, and the love of God the Father creator and sustainer of the universe who still nevertheless loved and sent the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth and sanctifies us. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have created us and even today you still sustain us
We thank you that you have sent the Son, your word, and where your word goes, it never returns void. It has fulfilled its purpose of bringing glory to your name. And you have sent your spirit to dwell in us and lead us into truth and all sanctification so that when we look at our lives, we see you as a foundation and the center of all reality. Pray that you would teach us to hold on and to love, to cherish and to think and to rethink and to enjoy even more the very fact that you have given yourself to us. You promised yourself to us. I will be your God and you will be my people. May we not get beyond that. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.